I'm going to be speaking on Ephesians uh, this morning, chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. So if you've got a Bible with you, then you might like to turn to that passage. You have to uh, <clears throat> forgive me this morning. I'm not quite as prepared as I'd normally be. My uh, wife, Jo, was ill over the weekend, so I've been on full-on kids' duty. Uh, so you'll also have to forgive me for dashing out as soon as I finish. It's not that I don't want to talk to you, um, but I'll need to get home. So today, as Vanessa said earlier, we return to our Ephesians series and we're going to spend most of the next two months there. Um, uh, we preached through the first half of the book before Easter and uh, seeing as we return to the series, just uh, I'd encourage you this week to maybe read through the book of Ephesians again, just to sort of refresh your memory on um, all that was taught before Easter and to get the words of the book back into your mind uh, and heart. Um, our preaching and our sermons are always more effective if you are also spending time in the text and letting the Lord speak to you through that. So we'll start by reading together. I think the words should appear uh, on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible. Uh, read from the start of chapter 4. There we go. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you who were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I still haven't quite shaken uh, some of my Anglican roots. Whenever I finish a passage like that, I feel so tempted to say, this is the word of the Lord and expect a thanks be to God from you. Maybe I'll try it one time. Um, so verse one then, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Before Easter, as we preached through the first half of the letter, uh, we preached through the text where Paul really describes that calling. Um, in simple terms, the first three chapters describes the calling to which we've been called and the last three chapters tells us how we get on and live worthily of that. Um, 
If you remember the very first sermon of the series that I preached back in January, uh, I taught then that this letter is one of Paul's most general letters addressed to a whole bunch of churches across Ephesus. So the calling that he describes is the calling of every church and by extension of every Christian. And I just wanted to remind you some of the aspects of that calling that uh, he's addressed in the letter so far. In the first chapter, we are told that our calling, and so put yourself at your calling as a Christian, my calling, our calling, includes the gift of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's first three of chapter one. Uh, this is uh, including the adoption as children of God, the forgiveness of our sins, redemption from slavery to sin and darkness uh, that Adrian talked about, an inheritance and a future hope. In the second chapter, we are told that we were originally dead in our sins, but we have now been reconciled to Jesus. We are now reigning with Christ. Uh, we have a set of good works prepared for us to do by God. And in the second half of the chapter, we're also reminded that our calling, um, in our calling, we have been reconciled to one another. That all the dividing walls between humanity have been broken down in Jesus. And that we've been called to be one new people, uh, the church, that is to manifest the presence and power of God in the world. And the third chapter tells us that this divinely ordained call to be the church, the one new people of God, is the way in which God is going to reveal his great wisdom and his glory to the whole of the cosmos and to make known his overwhelming love. That's our calling. It doesn't do it justice, a one-minute summary, but uh, you might like to try and uh, sort of hold together in your mind all of the sermons from uh, before Easter where we taught on that, all that was said uh, that elaborated the sort of dimensions and the um, detail of that calling. This is the calling to which we've been called. And so Paul tells us at the start of chapter four, uh, he begins to spell out what this should mean in practice. Um, and what this should mean in practice is surprisingly uh, sort of to do with the normal things of human life. Um, and that's a, that's a sort of constant uh, thing we come across in the New Testament. We have a glorious calling. Um, the God of the universe has become a human, died in our place, raised to be back with the Father, chosen to save me and you. And the conclusion is, uh, stop being nasty to each other, you know, start loving it. Sometimes the conclusions are very uh, human and down to earth, but um, these normal things are incredibly important. Where was I? Yeah, so given that this is our calling, how are we to live? Or as, uh, as he puts it in verse 13, uh, what is it to be mature in our calling? I suggest that in this text that I've read, Paul broadly emphasizes two things that characterize a mature church, unity and diversity. And I'm going to spend the rest of the sermon working through the passage to explore what that means. So skipping over verses two and three briefly, I'll come back to those in a moment. We'll pick it up at verse four again. So there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Unity, you see, is the work of Jesus. He is the one that establishes unity. 
by his life and death. Back in chapter 1, Paul has already said that God's purpose in Christ was to unify all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In chapter 2, he uh, shows that Jesus has broken down the hostility and he says that he makes in himself one new man, a unity. In chapter 3, he writes that uh, the mystery of God's purpose, that the Gentiles have become fellow heirs with the Jews, members of one body. So if we had read from the start up to this point, we would have had it hammered into our heads already by now, um, the importance of unity in Jesus as part of God's plan and the calling to which we've been called. And in these verses, 4 to 6, Paul is emphatic about this. You might want to sort of follow some of the logic of the text with me. There is only one body because there is only one spirit. Uh, there can be no church without the Holy Spirit. So because there is only one Holy Spirit, there is only one true church. There's only one hope because there's only one Lord who saved us from sin and redeemed us into life. Because only Jesus has uh, accomplished this, has died, rose again, and dealt with our sin. There is only one faith and one baptism. And because there's only one, all these ones, uh, I think we can draw two conclusions. Uh, Paul draws one conclusion explicitly in verses 2 to 3 that we'll look at in a minute. But there is an implicit conclusion in this text here. And that's this, that part of the unity of the church consists of a unity of belief and practice. Uh, we cannot be members of the church and believe in a different saviour. There's only one Lord. Uh, we cannot be members of the church and believe that we do not need forgiveness of our sins because there's only one baptism. Uh, to live a life worthy of our calling to be a mature church, there is a unity of belief that is necessary and that must be maintained if we're truly to belong to all the ones that Paul lists and to grow into maturity. And I'm going to come back to that theme a couple of times through the sermon, but we'll, we'll, we'll land it there. The second conclusion of this oneness, uh, Paul addresses in verses 2 and 3. So look again at those with me. We walk in the manner worthy of our calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If there is truly one faith, then uh, what Paul's saying is really that we should live like it in our behaviour and in our character. Uh, the necessary virtues that he points to are humility and gentleness and patience, which he defines as bearing with one another in love. That word humility is an interesting one because um, uh, we hear that as a virtue. But for the Greeks, for the Gentiles in Ephesus, uh, where Paul was writing, that word was not seen as a virtue. It was seen as um, a derogatory term. Uh, another way to translate it would be weakness, you see. Uh, it means to sort of think little of yourself. And for the Gentiles, this was not a good characteristic, uh, but was something to be avoided. You might like to cast your mind back to the sermon on self-esteem I preached a few weeks ago, which is all about thinking a lot of yourself. The same was ever true. But uh, the word of God says, there I am. The word of God says that we have to think of ourselves as small to assume a weakness. 
that allows us to be humble. Just might want to pause for a couple of seconds to sort of let that sink in really, that unity in our life together is only attainable when we assume a position of weakness and we think of ourselves as small so that we can be humble. And if we are truly one, uh, able to live in humility, patience, to make every effort to maintain unity, etc., then we can do all the things that make that work, like confessing our sins, uh, forgiving one another, righting all the wrongs that will inevitably uh, happen in any group of fallen human beings. At the start of this year, I preached on communion uh, and really emphasized that this isn't just the place where we declare and remember Jesus' death uh, on our behalf and his forgiveness of our sins, but it's also the point uh, where we recognize the unity of the church. Uh, and I suggested that we shouldn't uh, really take communion if we haven't done what we could from our part to put right any wrongs that we have amongst us as a church family. And then, uh, a few weeks before Easter, Dave Hadley preached on reconciliation. And then we come to this text, and you might notice with me that this is the third time in just over four months that uh, a Sunday morning sermon has one of its key points, reconciliation amongst us as a church family. It makes me wonder whether God is trying to particularly emphasize something to us that it has come up so often um, in such a relatively short space of time. We cannot live worthily of the calling to which we've been called without being willing to put right in humility and in weakness, uh, the broken relationships, hostility or bad feeling that may be amongst us as a church family. Again, just you know, take a minute to let that sink in. So to kind of conclude this little section on unity, uh, we can summarize that a mature church, uh, a church living worthily of the calling to which we've been called, will demonstrate a unity of faith, both in belief, a commitment to the Christian truth that allows us to be united, but also in our behavior, a unity manifest in our relationships and our character. And actually, if you, if you think about it, it is impossible to have unity without both of those. If you start to imagine not having one of those, it's impossible to imagine being unified. Uh, we can attempt to be united in our beliefs. I've heard some people talk it, of it as being spiritually one. But if we're not also united in our behavior, then in the end, that becomes hollow. Uh, you may have experienced that. I certainly have experienced environments where there is apparently a unity of belief but there's no unity of relationships and it rings dead and loses its uh, um, plausibility, really. And it's a temptation for some of us, uh, those of us who are, like to live more in our heads and less in conversation with others, this can be a temptation. Um, I include myself in that. It can also be a temptation for some churches, uh, but we cannot do this. Uh, our lives have to tell the same story as our confession. But equally, we can't attempt to find our place in a loving and gentle community without sharing in the commitments of the one faith. It is, in the end, a community around Jesus. And if we're not 
uh, given over to him, then we will never be able to truly find our place within it. This has been tried many times through history, actually. If you read through church history, there have been many times where the sort of boundaries of church unity have been relaxed. uh, And they've tried to sort of do uh, church without a central unity around Jesus. And it's uh, fallen apart every time. One of the most recent examples that I know of fairly well is sort of liberal Protestantism through the late 20th century in Germany and over in the States that really became about a social and political program. And the wheels fell off, uh, partly through the world wars, partly because you and I are not able to love each other with the depth uh, of love that Jesus requires on our own best efforts. We will not be able to live in peace at the depth of community that real unity requires without drawing on the love of Jesus and a commitment to God that can only be found when we share one faith. So, we can't have unity of belief without unity manifest in lives of love and vice versa. Both will fall short of what the church is called to be. We will not be worthy of the calling to which we've been called. But having spent six verses on unity, Paul turns immediately in the rest of the passage to describe diversity. Uh, And we see that unity doesn't mean all being the same, but far from that. In fact, and uh, this is the sort of best catchphrase in my sermon. So diversity in unity leads to maturity. That's nice and memorable, isn't it? Diversity in unity leads to maturity. And Paul says that all of this is the gift of Jesus. So if you look at the text again, verse 7, grace. uh, Again, the word grace can be translated gift. So grace, gift, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, and then we have a quote from a psalm. And then Paul kind of expands that quote. And... um, This is a classic kind of thing where we're with him, we're with him, and he's lost us in verse 8. We don't know what's going on. So uh, this morning, to try and understand why Paul's quoting Psalm 68, and and, uh, we're going to do a bit of Bible study. Uh, So if you, again, if you have your Bible, then turn to Psalm 68 with me. We're just going to spend a couple of minutes on it so we understand uh, what this is about. Uh, Psalm 68 is quite long, so I'm not going to read it all out. But rather than read it out, I just want to sort of describe through the psalm. But you may want to follow along with me. Um, If I'm optimistic, I might think you'd be making some notes in the margin to return to look at this in more depth this afternoon when you get home. (laughs) So Psalm 68 begins like this. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered. And uh, the psalm goes on to describe um, the God of Israel, the God of the Jews, coming to Jerusalem to reign as king. Now, uh, back in um, the time when Israel had its own king, and it wasn't ruled by the Romans as it is in Paul's time, uh, when there was a new king, there would be a whole... You know when we have a new king, we have a whole thing, don't we? We have a procession, a crowning, an enthronement... Um, I haven't seen one in the UK. Some of you will have done, but I guess not many of us. Because she's a, but but um, but 
there's an enthronement process. And this was the same in Israel. So if there was a new king on the throne, uh, there would be a procession. Uh, there'd be a coming up to Jerusalem. The king would be crowned, enthroned. Tribute would be bought. People would pledge their allegiance. Uh, and some of the Psalms that we have in the book of Psalms were particularly written for those occasions. And this may well be one of them. The difference in this psalm is that rather than a human king ascending to the throne of Israel, the psalm describes God himself becoming king. The first uh, 14 verses of the psalm describe what God has done for Israel. Uh, It's sort of the grounds on which he becomes king. Why is God becoming king? Well, here's the first 14 verses telling you why. And then in verses 15 to 18, Uh, we have the moment where God comes to Jerusalem and becomes king. And it's from that bit that Paul quotes. Paul quotes verse 18 here, which reads, You ascended on high in Jerusalem, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. And then in the rest of the psalm, we have a description of what God's reign will be like, where he will bring justice Uh, judging and punishing the wicked, protecting his people, receiving praise and devotion from all the nations of the earth. So this is uh, the psalm. What's really striking is that the psalm refers to God becoming king and Paul quotes it and applies it to Jesus. In Jesus's life and death and resurrection, that's what Paul seems to be referring to in verses 9 and 10 about descending and ascending. He's talking about Jesus coming down and going back again. In all of that, Paul sees fulfilled the ancient promise that one day God himself would become the king of Israel. And this is a really uh, kind of interesting and important theme uh, of of God becoming king and Jesus becoming king. But we're not going to go into it today because Paul only really mentions it in passing to uh, to ground this is the grounds of Jesus's authority to give gifts Jesus can give gifts because he has become king of Israel um, like God was always going to become king of Israel so although there's more to dig into I, I'm going to move on but you may have noticed for example that uh, Psalm 68 says that uh, when he becomes king he received gifts but Paul quotes it as saying that he gives gifts isn't that interesting Just I want to leave that there as a tempter for you to look at this in more detail. When I was preparing, I was very tempted to um, say, yeah, we can spend five minutes talking about how the New Testament uses the Old Testament and how Jewish authors would quote their scriptures. But then I sort of put Brother Tim Barton on my shoulder and heard the wiser word. So I'm going to move on so we get through the rest of the text. But I would encourage you, there are real riches sometimes in taking a bit of time to study some of these things. To maybe look at a commentary or a study Bible. So I'll leave that with you to do. So because Jesus has become king, he can give gifts to his people. And in verse 11, Paul tells us some of the gifts that he gives. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers. Before briefly explaining what's meant by those five words, I just want to note two things. First of all, uh, Paul describes these people as gifts to the church. Um, You could also say that these roles are gifts to the people. 
uh, it doesn't really matter. The roles are gifts to the people and then the people become gifts to the church. But these are not the only gifts that Jesus gives. Uh, In the New Testament, we have lots of lists of gifts. None of them are the same uh, because none of them are exhaustive. They're always indicative. They always give you some examples of the gifts that Jesus gives um, rather than a limit. It has to be one of these 18, you know. Uh, In fact, in the New Testament, there's probably over 25 gifts that are explicitly mentioned all the way through from miracles of healing uh, and spectacular things through to gifts of administration and fairly unspectacular things. The point is that not that there's an exhaustive list, but that there's many gifts that God gives to his church and that all can be used for building up the church. The reason I think Paul lists these five here is that these five gifts have a particular role in establishing a healthy and a mature church. Apostles are those with a particular responsibility for establishing the truth of the gospel in the foundations of a church, particularly a new church. Prophets are those with a particular responsibility to hear what God is saying now to the church and to say it on God's behalf. And apostles and prophets between them, uh, we read earlier in Ephesians, are particularly important for establishing the foundations of a church. You have to have the gospel at the centre and you have to hear what God is saying to the church to establish church. Evangelists, those gifted in helping the church share the message and love of Jesus with those outside the church. And the last two, shepherd, teacher, In the Greek and actually in the English, if you read the ESV, these two terms are linked with a single article. We have the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers. And the indication is that often these gifts come together. And uh, pastors, shepherds, are those with a particular responsibility for leading and guarding and helping those within the church. And teachers role is to teach the word of God faithfully in season and out of season. Again, there's sort of riches to dig into in understanding the full dimensions of those five roles. But the important thing for us this morning uh, is that the role of these people in verse 12 is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's really important. The role of these people is not to do all the ministry themselves, but to equip the whole church to get on with serving Jesus. Unfortunately, there is many a church where um, that doesn't happen, that those with these gifts, pastors, teachers, evangelists maybe, uh, become the paid staff, and then the paid staff are expected to do all the ministry on behalf of the church. I'm grateful that that's not the case here at Amblecates. Because the role of the pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets is to equip all of us to get on with serving Jesus. It's their role not only to guard the unity of the church, but also to develop its diversity by encouraging the flourishing of the gifts of God in all the people. And this is so important because in the rest of the text, it's when all of us are using our gifts to serve God in huge diversity, then we attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, maturity. 
that we're no longer children, tossed about by waves of doctrine. And all the things that Paul talks about in the rest of the passage. Just repeat that one more time. That is when uh, the apostles, prophets, etc. equip the saints for the work of ministry. When we all serve God in our diversity, that we attain to the maturity that Paul talks about. When there's diversity in our unity. In unity, we're no longer divided about false teaching and deceitful schemes. But we speak the truth about the one faith in love. Our unity is protected and defended, but in love. And the result of all this is that the whole body is joined and held together in every joint, and when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay. I hope that helps you make sense of the text as it stands. I hope that God speaks to you as I explain the text. But in the last couple of minutes, I just want to turn to what I think may be particularly relevant of this for us here at Amblecate. In some, it's all relevant for us, isn't it? You know, we need to get our heads around the text. We need to hear God's word to us. It's all relevant. But uh, there are a couple of things that I thought may be particularly relevant to us. And so I've got three. The first one, uh, can you pop, plop it up? Because I, I can't remember quite why I called it. There you go. What's your part to play? Doing your bit, exploring your gift and call. The vision of a mature church that Paul gives us is one where we're living worthy of the calling to which we've been called, where each person is equipped and released to serve Jesus in their gifts and to do their part in building up the church. And one of the best bits of my job is actually seeing a lot of this happening. Uh, So one of the privileges of being on staff, um, I'm probably more aware than many of how many people contribute just to make our Sunday gatherings possible in a kind of well-equipped and um, fit-for-purpose building. You know, we wouldn't be able to meet so easily on a Sunday if uh, Terry didn't come down every week and put out all the chairs. You know, we wouldn't have nice flowers at the front of the church when you go outside if Vicky didn't tend to them. Uh, We wouldn't have a nice hot drink at the end of the service if Anne didn't organise the rotor to make sure there were people there to serve it. Uh, But it's not just the Sunday morning. In fact, the Sunday morning is the minority, really, of our life together as a church. Uh, Most of uh, what goes on happens throughout the week. There's so much I could say. Um, You know, I know of people who spend time every week visiting those of us who are sick and struggling. You know, I think of the weekly care and encouragement and support that those that choose to meet in small groups give each other. I think maybe of our directors who spend hours and hours of their um, time every year ensuring that we're fit for purpose as a charity and that we run well. What about, I was thinking even this week of the sort of dozen, 15 people who have signed up to give a hot meal to Amy and Andy Freeman um, on the arrival of their new baby last Sunday. I, I could go on. I, really, I, I could go on. Um, in fact, I was going to interview Roxy this morning about some of the work going on on the Horbush Estates and with young families, but unfortunately she's ill. So we'll try and maybe do that next week or another time. But there's so much to talk about. In fact, in the church family meeting, in a fortnight's time, we've got our church family meeting. Um, The service will be shorter. 
uh, bring your lunch and we'll meet. And the main thing that we're going to be talking about is what God seems to be doing among us and how we need to respond. So there's so much to say, really, about the life of our church. But the point is that this is what the church should be. Everyone has a part to play that fits with their own personality and gift. And if we play our part, then this will be a place that grows in the love of God. So here's two invitations to throw out to you. If you're uh, not really playing your part yet, you know, you may have attended uh, and got to know us a bit, but never really um, found a place. Um, Or maybe you've even been around for several years, but you've never really got involved. You've never really found a way to serve. Um, Then I just invite you, if you want to, to come and talk to me about helping you to do that. Um, You'll never really feel a part of the unity unless you have a part to play, I think. Um, That's been my experience and the experience of many others I know, that unless you have a part to play in the church, you won't feel as much a part of it as you could, unless you're contributing in your own way. And the second invitation is because of what I've taught about the role of pastors and teachers and uh, etc., that our role is to equip you uh, to serve God in the way in which he calls you. And so the other invitation is if you have a sense of calling in your heart from the Lord of a way that you want to serve him, but you uh, don't know how to do that, or you might look at all the things that we're involved in at a church and feel, I just can't fit into any of those, but I do have a real interest in this. Then again, I'd love to talk to you about that. Um, Not today, I've got a bolt out today. But on a future Sunday, maybe, or, or drop me an email or something, I'd love to talk to you about that because that is what we should be doing as a church, is encouraging and releasing one another to serve the calling of God on our hearts. Uh, Greg, a visiting speaker, came again back in February, I think, from Chornhill. And he said, if you really want to do something for the Lord, don't wait and expect someone else to do it for the Lord. Maybe he wants you to do it. To do it you know. So if that's you, come and talk to us. We'd love to help you to grow Uh, in that. Okay, second thing that's particularly relevant for us, I think, is about this unity diversity thing. Um, Because diversity will not just be evident in our roles and gifts, but will also be evident in some of our beliefs. And this is a tricky topic to address because of our culture. You know, we live in this post-truth world now, don't we? That was the top word of the year a couple of years ago, post-truth. Uh, where more and more people have abandoned the idea that there is an absolute truth that is right for everyone. Uh, you know, nowadays we just have facts and alternative facts, don't we? Um, and if this starts to creep into the church, if we get fooled by this agenda, then we will end up wanting a no-truth diversity. Uh, this is where kind of the Bible means what it means to me about this. And if you disagree, then that's just your opinion. But this is what it means to me. And that's the end of the conversation. Uh, you know, you might see it if we all sit down for Bible study and we kind of pool our opinions, but there's no attempt to actually get beyond our opinions to what may be true. Um, and that's not helpful diversity. That's an immature diversity. We should always be trying to grow in the truth and not just in our own opinions. And I don't think that's the diversity that Paul's talking about. But we can also get it wrong the other way. Um, We can become so afraid of the post-truth culture 
so afraid of losing the unity of the faith that we can start to see every difference as a make or break issue where on every issue one of us is a heretic and one of us is faithful that is also immature and unhelpful Paul is clear that there is a unity of faith that's non-negotiable there are some issues where the one truth is so important that if you don't believe it you cannot really be a Christian Um, But there are many other issues where, although there may still be one truth, we recognise that we struggle to work out exactly what that is. And where we can disagree without disturbing the fundamental unity of the church. And we, uh, as elders, we distinguish between these things by the language of primary issues and secondary issues. Primary issues are those where we cannot disagree and remain Christians. Things like the incarnation of Jesus, that he was fully man and fully God. The Trinity, that God is three and one. That final judgment, that one day God will judge all humanity. Some will face his wrath, some will face his salvation through Jesus. The inspiration of scripture, that the Bible is the word of God. These are primary issues. But there are secondary issues where we can still disagree and be united. For example, some Christians uh, think that uh, we shouldn't drink. Other Christians think that's okay. We can disagree about that. That's all right. Uh, sort of to pick up the Genesis theme, you know, some, some of us believe that the first uh, seven days of creation are a literal seven days. Others of us believe that they're not a literal seven days. And that's not how we should understand that text. It's not a primary issue. We can disagree about that. In fact, Paul, you know, Paul, who wrote Ephesians, one of the secondary issues he faced was uh, whether Christians are allowed to meet, eat meat, that's been involved in worshipping idols. Some Christians thought that was wrong, other Christians thought that was fine, and Paul sort of says it's a secondary issue. He says a lot more than that about how you treat one another primarily when there's a secondary issue, but he says it's a secondary issue. So I just wanted to raise that, really, um, and to say that in a mature church, we should be absolutely united on the primary issues. They are non-negotiable. They're what make us a Christian. But we should be comfortable with a diversity on secondary issues. That doesn't mean that we don't contest for what we believe the truth to be. There are many secondary issues which I will preach on and teach you what I think is true about that. But we should be comfortable if we have some diversity on secondary issues. If you're interested to read more about this, there's a page on our website about what we believe. And there we've listed uh, the sort of creeds and the statement of faith that encapsulates what we consider the primary issues. So I'd encourage you to look at that if you're interested. Um, uh, And again, there's an invitation to talk. If this raises something for you that you want to work through, then uh, I think all of us as elders would be happy to have a chat with you about that. Let's pray, shall we? You know that God gives us grace to be incredibly firm on primary issues in a culture that's abandoning the truth but humble enough to endure secondary issues in patience and humility and the final one uh, is nothing not to say anything new really I, I mentioned it in the sermon it's about reconciliation in this season as a church where we're looking to build where we want to grow in community and discipleship and mission God has spoken three times in four months about reconciliation And I would just put that before you and say, is this something we need to sort out as we move into this season? 
Uh, if it touches your heart or your conscience in some way, then I guess my encouragement is don't wait for a fourth sermon, but do something about it this week on the base of the third. Okay. I think that's...